salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, maybe you need headshots or drone content from a licensed drone pilot, just go over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear previous episodes of Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Check out my interviews. Well, there's an impromptu sound effect there. Sorry about that. Check out my interviews with Dick Purton. Um, Dennis Frawley, Terry Foster, Karen D'Alessandro, Chuck Santoni, Michelle McCormick, just to name a few. All that and more can be found at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Also, if you'd like to help out and become a producer for this documentary, Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, which is why I'm doing this podcast to promote this, this film, click on the Patreon or PayPal links at Ron Robinson Studios or on the heart icon if you're listening to it at Buzzsprout. Also, again, I want to thank you for tuning into this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you are enjoying it, do me a favor, share it with your friends. And, if, uh, of course, if there's a radio personality or musician, former or otherwise, that you'd like to hear more about, shoot me an email, ron at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Very special show today. Um, we won't be talking with a radio personality, per se, but rather a musician whose music has has and is still is played on the radio. In fact, um, one of the biggest songs in, in the history of music uh, gets played, uh, and it's by this particular band that uh, this man founded. He was a founding member of the rock band The Romantics, a band, as I mentioned, that was a staple on rock radio in the 80s and 90s, and he's still churning out new music today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, all the way from Oregon, the extremely talented Mr. Mike Skill. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks, Ron. Man, it's great. Great. Thanks for having me. And I love uh, I love uh, everyone has a different radio show, and it's like it's almost going back in time when uh, – you know, radio in the, uh, everybody had their own little like uh, hookup sometimes back in the fifties and sixties and that their own, uh, what do you call it? Radio thing. Right. Going on. Uh, right. Shortwave radio and all that kind of thing. Really cool thing. And I, yeah, great to be on the show though. I appreciate yeah. it. And, and we have, we had a mutual friend because we were just talking before we went on the air a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the uh, memorial for, for John O'Leary. Um, before we get into okay. your career, anything you want to, I mean, I still can't believe it happened. I still can't believe he was murdered, but, uh, I like to hear from people who knew him when he was younger. Tom, talk to me about a little bit, John O'Leary, what you remember. All the sympathies with uh, John and his family. I mean, I remember him. He came He was at that first show, I believe. I think he was at that first show because Santoni was there. Yeah. And he was with uh, early on ABX. I, I, I was an uh, early uh, uh, listener uh, in 1967, 68, when they, they came out. It was uh, ABX and WKNR, and then uh, RAF happened. Um, and when it was freeform music, but, uh, John was, uh, he, he, he came on stage and announced us and supported us on radio and he'd come on stage and we're five, five, eight, Jimmy's five, nine and, uh, Wally's probably five, seven. I don't know, but, uh, five, eight, I'm five, eight. And John comes on stage six, and he's five, six, yeah. six, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're just ready to go on stage and kick him out and hear John, <laughs> you feel like a munchkin. But he's a beautiful guy and uh, always honest and straightforward, you know, you know, Sky Daniels and all those guys back in the day. And he was one of the good guys. And um, it really hurt when I heard that because uh, yeah. he was he was never someone that uh, said a bad thing. I never heard a bad thing he's from a, that guy. Yep. Nice as, yep. You know, he was about music, all about music and uh, all about Detroit music. Yeah. 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 And uh, 
it's just it hurts and uh the band of romantics uh 1976 we came together uh me and jimmy uh had been bouncing around town the drummer jimmy i went, went to high school with him junior high and high school just after junior high and uh uh Young young kids, you know, young kids banging on our guitars. I was playing guitar. He needed a bass player. Jimmy did, and his, his little group. I had moved to this his neighborhood, and uh, went to a new school. And I, you know, walk up to the school, and uh, I see those guys, and kind of gravitated after each day. You know, you get closer to people, and you start talking. And uh, so we started jamming, and I switched over to bass because they needed a bass player. Anyway, uh, that's the east side of Detroit, quite quite a long time ago, and. Uh, you move forward to 76, um, 10 years later, you know, almost 10 years, eight years later after school and all that, uh, we pulled together, we were running around Detroit and really playing original music. We had our own like little storage, uh, um, little storefront and on the east side, uh, over by Chalmers and Six Mile on the east side, I, everybody might know that yeah. area. And that was our kind of area. Um, we had a little play space and we'd uh, jam and write songs and uh, build build base cabinets and speaker cabinets and stuff we couldn't afford. And we had our little <laughs> jobs and uh, the little auto uh, industry in Detroit, you know, the little shops around Detroit, There's, there were thousands of them. And, uh, you know, for the little parts on the cars and we'd collect our money up and I'd buy a new bass guitar or a speaker or speakers and buy, build cabinets and all that. And wow, yeah. we were writing, we were writing songs, you know, writing songs, other bands. It was really, um, it was a big jump. You either played a bar where you played cover songs four sets a night, or you played Masonic Temple. You know, there was no. No, nowhere in between. There was nothing really. Uh, there was um, the Rainbow Club or something. John Sinclair had a club down in, in one of the hotels, but uh, it didn't last too long. I think a year or two, but um, we didn't have the Romantics at that time. Anyway, um, me and Jimmy were bouncing around and, uh, we went to New York. We formed a little group and uh, we ended up going to New York. We played CBGB's uh, with a guitar player and uh, I played bass and I had a lead singer. And we, we went, I think we got there um, to New York after breaking down in Cleveland and getting another truck carrying his drums. And um, we made it there. Uh, I think we played, it was either a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. I can't recall, but you know, it was like all the musicians hanging out and uh, right. I met Sylvain Sylvain and there's other other cats in the, in the audience and we did our set and it went over and it was pretty good, you know, small crowd, really small crowd, slow night. But we actually, the thing was, we put it together, we wrote songs, we drove, we made it there, we played, we came back. It was like a big, a big, you know, it was a big hurdle, a big, uh, we can do this, you know, right. that kind of thing. We can. It was uh, a different time then. There was there was no obstacles, and you, you could do whatever you set your mind to. And, and yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, we had to rent a trunk, we had a room, and <laughs> we did it ourselves. And uh, we just went there, played, and we knew we found out we could do it. Get out of Detroit and go somewhere else and show our what we had to offer. And, and uh, I have questions right. about your New York days, and then we have lots of questions about Detroit. But uh, and as I mentioned at the top, you're still kicking yeah. out new music, which I love, and I want to talk a little bit about that. So but before we could talk too much about that, I want to talk like I want to stay on the same thing about the early days when you were yeah. growing up. Before you became a music, before you you know got any notoriety, what were you listening to on the radio when you were growing oh, up? Earlier, even earlier. Okay, I have I had uh, three brothers, a sister, and uh, two of the brothers were older. They were like. Uh, probably in the fifties, they were like 13 years old or 14 years old. And they were way into rock and roll. And, uh, I was probably five or six, four or five or six. And, uh, 
you know, when you're a little kid and you have a big family, five kids, a family, you're learning fast. You're learning, you're learning on your feet, right? Real fast. Right. And cause it's all getting passed down. And, uh, so their records, they were buying records like rhythm and blues records, black rhythm and blues records, uh, vocal groups, and then uh, like Chuck Berry, like the silhouettes and that kind of thing. And, you know, all those kind of vocal groups, uh, the dr- I guess the drifters were later, but um, then they had Chuck Berry, Little Richard and uh, those kind of things, you know, so we were my brother, my little brother, he was a year younger. And we're, we're taking my toy um, record player out and we're pulling their records out and we're not supposed to, you know, they're going out on the weekends and we're pulling their records out and being little kids, you know, and I used to listen to that. And that was the first stuff I, I heard uh, of Little Richard and uh, let's see, uh, what's the Elvis song? Uh, uh, I can't think of it That's right All Right uh, Mama was the first one. Yeah, that's yeah. the first one. It was uh, Heartbreak Hotel, I think, oh, or yeah. something like that. And um, since my baby left me. And uh, <laughs> so that that whole thing, that spurred the music. I mean, there was rock and roll around me for my brothers. We... Uh, uh, coming up into Detroit, uh, into early Detroit music, uh, Motown was around 1960, 61, too. I heard Smokey Robinson. I'm a kid, you know, I'm I'm probably 10 years old or something, 9, 10 years old. And I'm hearing Motown in my neighborhood. Everybody, Motown's everywhere, in the streets, everywhere. In Detroit, east side. That had to be cool out. because somebody who was interested in music, obviously, at a young age as you were, that was happening in your backyard. That had to be exciting for you. Yeah. I mean, the neighborhood was like, that's our, our like, almost like our brethren, our cousins, our, our people are uh, putting out uh, records on their own record label. It was like, wow, down the street, five miles away, whatever. I'm on the east side, on the other side of, of downtown. Uh, you know, you drive by, oh, there's Motown, you know. And, and uh, yeah, it was a big deal. There's records coming out. They're getting played on CKLW across the street, across the river. And uh, that's the radio station where it is to CKLW and WKNR and, uh, and WJLB. And you, on JLB, you're hearing James Brown and all the rhythm and blues stuff. You're hearing all the really good black music coming out. So you could, you had this wide range of music. And on CKLW from Canada, they were, their playlist was less, uh, I believe their playlist was less uh, restricted. So they were playing, they would be playing like uh, Sam Cooke and, uh, all the great black singers, James Brown, uh, Wilson Pickett, all that stuff. And then they're playing, then they're, you know, with the Kinks coming out and the Rolling Stones coming out, uh, you had all that English stuff coming out. So it was a big mix of Motown, uh, all the rhythm and blues stuff, and then the, the Brit stuff. And so it was like crazy good. Yeah, well, so good. obviously every musician cites the Beatles, but uh, how did the Beatles yeah. impact you specifically? Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I, it, before that, I mean, before that, I had all the girl groups, the girl groups, the Shirelles, the, the, the Ronettes. Ronettes. Yeah. Yeah. You had all the frat music, the frat music which came out. Louis Louis with the Kingsmen, you know, all the frat rock great bands came out before the Beatles and all that. And there were mostly bands were soul groups. Rock bands weren't rock bands at the time. I, people don't understand that. They were soul groups or lounge groups. They would play standards or they, you know, they, they, if you were more guitar oriented group, you're playing um, James Brown, uh, you're playing frat rock, frat music, uh, crazy uh, rock and roll. And then surf music came around. So there wasn't any like, and it was all clean guitar, you know, it's all pretty clean guitar except for the blues cats. And I didn't know about the blues cats at that time. I didn't get that until later on. Uh, so after, uh, after after Motown and CKLW playing all that stuff, here's these teen clubs breaking open after the Beatles and Stones. And I love the Kinks and Animals. My favorite groups are the Kinks and Animals. And everybody loved the Beatles. I mean, their songs were great, but the, the Animals and the Kinks had this raw, 
rhythm and bluesy kind of interface. It was it, it, they they emulated Motown, but it had a Stax feeling to it, didn't it? Yeah, oh, oh totally. And and then with Dave Davies ripping the speakers on his guitar, you know, on his guitar, he just made that guitar dirty. And <laughs> a lot of the blues players were doing that when when they recorded um when um they did um Rocket eighty eight, the song Rocket eighty eight. Love that and that's, song. Uh, yeah, that's uh, from nineteen forty eight. Um, what's his name from Tina Turner? Ike Turner. Ike Turner I, yeah. I think he was in that. I think he had something to do with that. Yeah, he's the one who wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, he. Uh, they got to the studio and the the amplifier fell off the roof or something, and the speaker, um, with the cone, it the cone moved and ripped. So they uh, recorded Rocky A8 with a ripped speaker on the, on the, the speaker was gone they, and they were going to redo the guitar. But then they, after they put, recorded it and left it, it sounded so good. They left it. So that's the beginning of like that whole yeah. uh, dirty guitar in your, in your face and it soon to become Jimi Hendrix. You know, he took it to the next level. But anyway, so we had all these scene clubs in Detroit, around Detroit. There was a ton of teen clubs on the east and west side, you know, and then the hideouts came out, the hideout. Because, because back then DJs would do like dance hops, right? That's right. That's right. You had sock hops and dance hops. And then there were these teen clubs that would open up. That would be like a, a union hall or a, um, some kind of hall would get rented and they'd have the bands and the bands were usually Bob Seger, Bob Seger, Ernie uh-huh. Ted Nugent, the Amboy Dukes. And I don't know if Amboy Dukes were there yet. That was a little bit later, but it was early, early Stooges guys and early uh, MC5 were playing like little, uh, they played hot Herbert hamburger stands over on the west side you know a hamburger stand would open yeah. and wayne kramer and fred smith would play that with a drummer so rock and roll was like it was happening in detroit the whole thing was brewing and next thing you know you get uh the grandy ballroom and the um birmingham palladium in birmingham michigan and uh now i have to stop you right there because i i'm i'm gonna break my yeah. own rule and kind of get ahead of myself but you brought yeah. up the grande ballroom did you ever get to play there i never played there okay. i went there um, okay they i went there late and i uh, saw I think I saw Jay Giles or, or somebody like that. Wow. It was, uh, someone, someone uh, I forget it was a, a benefit show of some sort. So there were, there were all a ton of bands playing. It was a beautiful place. And uh, yeah, I want to yeah, give a so plug to Tony D'Annunzio. He made a great, fantastic film about the Grande. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just give him a plug. In Grand, fact, Grand, get a link to, to the, you can see a link in the show notes to that. Yeah. Because in San Francisco, um, uh, Russ Gibb had gone to San Francisco out there. It was in 67 when the love in was happening and all that. And, uh, the be-in it was a be-in there's just people getting together young people getting together and uh uh just out of curiosity have you seen louder than love that film about that the grande i've seen, seen bits and pieces okay, of it yeah, i've yeah. got i think I've got, I've got the dvd i i, I think i saw most uh, i've seen probably all of it in chunks <laughs> yeah t- tony knocked it out of the park I just yeah yeah, so, yeah yeah uh so all right so how do you go from being a fan of this music to saying you know what i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make a go of it well yeah, I got I got a guitar. My my mom and dad we bugged them. My brother and I got guitars uh, right after the Beatles came out. Right, right around 65, 1965, we got guitars. I went to get uh, drums, and I ended up buying guitars because I didn't want to lug drums around. <laughs> and uh, I got a forty five dollar guitar in a box, and my brother got a uh, a used guitar, uh, probably a twenty five guitar dollar guitar. His played better than mine. Mine the strings were so far off the frets, I had to set it down. I it almost made me go forget guitar. Because wow. it, it was so hard to play. A guy across the street, um, uh, he had a band, a touring group. There are touring groups playing covers and things uh, around Detroit. All, every neighborhood had like two or three bands, it seemed like. You go you go five blocks away, there's another two bands. You know, you go down, you go from, from Jefferson on the side of the river. We had three or four or five bands. And then you go on the other side, there's five or six more bands. And we, 
somehow we'd meet up and say and it would be how'd you play those chords in that song and we'd be trading songs we'd be trading songs and uh they play right out in the front of their house on the porch or by the garage and or in the garage and yeah, on weekends and uh so i had a guitar and um i was learning to play and um the thing first one of the first songs i i think i learned was uh, green onions by uh by uh, uh Mitt booker t and the mgs yeah which, the, the, the speaking of stacks the house band for stack yeah. records yeah steve cropper and then then i moved on you know you buy beetle books you, you buy chord books beetle chord books but back then the Beatles were playing in the key of E, uh, guitar keys, you know, guitar keys, open E, open A, open C, open G. We, when you bought a music book, they were on E flat. <laughs> piano, piano chords, you know? So it was like, oh man, I got to, so you put the record on the record player and you, and you play the album and you turn it down to 33, right? Yeah. And you learn all the guitar parts slow. And then you turn it back up, you learn them fast. And then you learn the guitars, the chords by off listening on the, on the, on the um, record. So after you learned six or eight chords, you knew enough chords to, learn, to know a whole album worth of songs, you know? So like it's, then. so the, your education kind of goes to another level. It kind of draws away from the books and more like about your feel, right? Ear training, ear training. You're, you're, you're teaching yourself. Like now I can hear a song and I know what key it's in without having a guitar on me. I can hear it. I can hear the, the shape of the chord on the guitar. You know, you That's can, cool. yeah. So I can know what's the key of E or the key of C or G. I can tell. And usually all songs are related to a one, four, five form. And uh, it, there, uh, there were so many songs that were uh, written in a certain way that you could learn. If you learn six or eight songs, you knew Dylan songs, you knew the Rolling Stone songs, you knew, uh, you know, it was it, until they, until they started to, all the keyboards came in and all pianos, it, it was different. But my education came from my brothers with their records, the radio, the British invasion, the Detroit high energy rock invasion with MC5, uh, Psychedelic uh, Stooges, uh, Iggy Pop, and, uh, you know, all those bands, The Frost, The Time, there was a yeah. band called The Time. So all those bands, like, were part of it. And these teen clubs, I couldn't go. I was, I like, right in between. I was 14, 15 years old, didn't have a car, didn't have a job yet, didn't get a job till the next year, I think. So I was going to those clubs, but I'm talking to all my friends. Uh, the girl next door was older. She used to go with her girlfriend. They tell us about what's happening at the shows. And each week you hear the new, what did Iggy do this week at the Granny Bar? <laughs> you know, uh, he had the vacuum cleaner out sticking it in his <laughs> pants. <laughs> he had the peanut butter out, you know, that kind of That's glass, rolling in glass. Oh, my. Hey, you, you, know, obvi you obviously found the right combo and you're, you made your mark with the romantics, but could you talk about the formation of your very first band and how that came to be? Yeah, uh, well, during that time with the, the teen clubs, I did have a little teen band, the High Tide. It was a little group playing instrumentals, you know, the Walk Don't Runs and the, sur the Surf songs and, you know, and a real simple song. So I was just learning. But once I got to school, over to school where, where Jimmy was with the guitar, it it became more song-oriented. We're, we're, we're kind of like, we're just in discovery. We're in that next level. And then, uh, but as high school ended, we were writing songs. By, by the time high school ended, we we're writing songs. All the other bands were clamoring to play these bars and we weren't. We just were, were huddling up in our little uh, storefront. There were other bands doing that, but very few. We just pay that $90 a month and, and stay at that studio after, after work. You and know, just, after and work, just you harnessing your craft. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we did. And we'd show up at other bands gigs and that and we'd and say, what are you guys doing? And we'd tell them what we're doing, we're writing new songs, writing songs. So for a lot, quite a while, we're writing songs all through the 70s. 
and going to see shows like David Bowie, Mata Hoople, T-Rex, Nazareth, uh, Slade, wow. Jay Giles, all these bands coming down to the, uh, the Ford Auditorium or Cobo Hall or um, in Humble Pie at the East Town. East Town became my place. That's when I started going to a lot of concerts at the East Town Theater. I was just going to say, talk to me about Peter Wolf, because if you want to talk about a rock star who made an influence on me as a kid, I mean, that guy was the he was the best front man I've ever seen at that time. Yeah, because, well, you had to remember James Brown influenced Jagger to a, to a large extent. And then the Stones were kind of getting kind of, um, in the 70s, in the 70s, they were getting a little bit not as hard rock. Not as they were getting, it, was, it wasn't quite as, and so here comes the new kind of like rhythm and blues hard rocker, and it was Jay Giles. They were bringing back raw rock and roll because you had all the radio was playing, like a lot of radio was yacht rock and california folk rock and the softest kind of stuff uh, long songs yes songs for five minutes and and kansas for five minutes and and sweet and i mean and sticks and we're just to the, to the sweet and t-rex and they weren't getting they were getting a little bit of play on radio i guess w4 and uh mark Perino and all those guys they were they were starting to play a lot of the new british stuff that was coming out the glitter bands you know t-rex and so that was like a new thing and then uh, Jay Giles brought in just raw American rock and roll. So they stood out. And that's the band we followed. We followed them for a while there. And I saw them open for Slade. Slade was so loud. We I walked out of, of Ford Auditorium. It was just too loud. I love the band. <laughs> but it was, oh my God, it was so loud. But Jay Giles kicked ass. We always made a big deal to go see Jay Giles. Run, run, run but, away. Speaking of Slade, run, run away. It's still, yeah, in, my, it's still oh, in my playlist. Yeah. I love that too. I know. So all those bands were showing up at uh, Masonic Temple. David Bowie, I saw the first uh, uh, tour of David Bowie, uh, the first album at uh, Fisher Theater. <laughs> this is great. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. Humble Pie was my favorite band. Oh, my God. They were so good. I think, and I think our Detroit bands, I, I just wrote this in a, in, a, in a text. I think our bands, like the Stooges, the, the MC5, you know, Frost, all our bands, Savage Grace, the attitude and raw energy of Detroit, when those bands from Britain came over and played, our bands weren't like you no know, scaredy cats. They they kicked ass on stage, and I think they influenced the sound of like early Led Zeppelin record. I don't think they would have had that attack if it wasn't for like Grand Funk. And I mean, Grand Funk, um, Led Zeppelin for Grand Funk at the Atlanta Pop Festival. Grand Funk was a big, huge band when yeah. Led Zeppelin came out, and I think our bands, our energy, our attitude influenced those those British bands. Well, you know, I, I contend, and I'm not the only one, that uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should be in Detroit and not Cleveland. Yeah. And not, not, no disrespect, but I don't think it would well, be know, criticized as much. I think it would be well, one here. We start our own Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Detroit, and, and it's going to include everybody that's important anyway. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, you know it's, it, yeah, we got such blues and soul and rock and roll and Aretha and that's everything. Great. It's, it's incredible. There's so many bands. I mean, you just, I mean, the look, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the, yeah. all these different, the, the Rockets. We haven't even brought up the Rockets. Anyway. The Rockets, yeah. Yeah, and before the Rockets, uh, you know, you, you got uh, Mitch Ryder. And uh, I was a big fan. My brother went to the Wall Lake Casino and saw the Rock, uh, Mitch Ryder and Detroit Wheels at the uh, Wall Lake Casino out, out there in Wall Lake. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the Wall Lake uh, Pavilion or whatever it was called, the casino. And yeah, because that's where I think that's where they had the dance hop, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Um, they they played out there, and my brother brought the 45. I, I think he brought the album in the 45. Uh, Jenny, take a ride, and I'm like, uh, 
10 years old, 13, 11 years old. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm, I'm here listening to the song and I'm hearing Johnny B, you know, when I'm that age, that's Johnny B. And that's the influence right there. That's that stuff sticks in your head that, that kick drum, man, Johnny B, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, um, uh, McCarty on guitar. Oh yeah. my God. You know, yeah. it, that stuff is in me still. And, uh, when I'm writing, when I'm, when I'm coming up with stuff, it's still, it's still instilled in me. And it's, uh, anything that I grew up with is still comes out in that attitude. Nothing has swayed me away from the Detroit, um, influence, nothing, you know, you get other things that come in and, and melodies and that thing that may, may come from something, but really it's, uh, it really is, uh, just, um, enshrined itself within me and, uh, it, it still comes out. That's why, that's why this record I, I did, uh, the new record I did on my own, uh, it, it, it has a more loose, um, uh, direct attitude it's not so refined i didn't refine it so much that it took away any kind of a high energy right. or attitude yeah. attitude it's not it's not uh it's not in your face blazing uh, stu- uh i don't know it's just my take on uh yeah it's, it's uh, a nice backbeat rock and roll yeah my energy my attitude and where i'm at right now and yeah talk to me about how the romantics came to be mike well, that's what I was going to get into that. And you, luckily you, you stopped me so I could converse about uh, the other stuff and uh, about my upbringing and music. And uh, we, Roman, uh, the guys from MC5 came over, uh, the new MC5 came over to our little storefront in 1976. Uh, me and Jimmy uh, came back from New York and uh, we just kind of broke up. We just kind of like said, ah, let's don't do anything for a while. So it only lasted like two months or so. We got back. I was calling guys. I go into magazine and papers looking for singers. And I, I call a guy and I say, yeah, so you're a singer. Yeah, man, uh, we're, we're a rock band. We want to, we were looking for somebody like kind of like Iggy, uh, kind of Iggy, J, uh, Rod Stewart, someone raw, someone like Peter Wolf. Uh, and then uh, I go, what do you listen to? He goes, oh, I love Seely Dan. And I go, um, okay, well, um, <laughs> They're great, man. I'll, I'll give you a call later. You know, we, and so it was like that. You, every way you recall, there was nothing that had the attitude the Detroit right. thing. So uh, anyway, we were scouring the records and we're jamming the record uh, LPs right, and watching radio and reading magazines, Bomp Magazine and Hit Parader Magazine. And we're seeing the New York scene and uh, Lou Reed and uh, all that. And then the Ramones start coming out and then the Dolls. And and so we're going, man, we can do that. We can sing that, that stuff. We can sing that crap. And so we start writing our own songs and singing more singing. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, I had heard Wally was playing somewhere and went, saw him and we, we, uh, we grabbed him, asked him to come jam. And, uh, uh, he brought rich and, uh, uh, it became the romantics. And, um, uh, we went on and played this, my fair lady club down in Jefferson, our first show with the MC five opening. I mean, us opening for the MC five, uh, all your DJ friends were there. I'm sorry, Dave Dixon, Chuck Santoni, all those guys. And we were trying to get our first single out and it wasn't ready yet. We had, we had taken the masters in and everything. We wanted a 45 and uh, we did the show and uh, uh, we kind of like stood out really good. We kind of stole the show because although the five were sounded great and they were doing a really cool thing, it was still looked like 1970s. It still had a seven early seventies look to it. It was still, it looked, it didn't look as new. We came on with our skin tight, uh, matching suits, orange, uh, orange, uh, iridescent suits. Right, like yeah, the, the infamous like the cover, right, yeah. Like the Motown bands, Temptations, short hair, moving around the stage, short songs, 
choruses that you could sing when you left the club, you know, a chorus, you'd sing a chorus and the chorus was so simple and straight ahead. When you're walking out of the, the show, you could be singing the chorus. That's what the whole idea was. Melodies. And those guys were great, but it just, we kind of took the spotlight and, uh, and we, they asked us back next week. Um, this place was like, it's my fair lady. It was like cross from um, like Van Dyke and Jefferson. I think it was okay. somewhere like that. And, uh, they asked us back the next week and Mick Deville was playing. So we opened for Mick Deville uh, out of New York. And um, we were looking at some other shows coming up. And in the meantime, the management uh, got a hold of uh, Brass Ring. I think it was Brass Ring Productions, uh, Gail Perino, or one of those uh, uh, promoters. And uh, and uh, got us on this show at the Pontiac Silverdome with uh, wow. Steve Miller, Steve Miller, Jay Giles. No, Steve Miller, Peter, uh, Steve Miller, Peter Frampton. And Jay Giles is going to get to Pontiac Silverdome. And we've only done two shows. But uh, the the response was so good with uh, with uh, radio and everything. We were so uh, really cool with radio and all the press and everything. And so they gave us a chance and uh, we opened that show and uh, we did our half hour. I think it was about seven o'clock at night and uh, in the evening. And then uh, there's probably... 6,000 people and people streaming in, people coming in and it was crowded in front of us, but by no means was it full. It was like an empty stadium, but we, it was more people than we ever played for in our life. Six, you know, five, 6,000 people. Right. And uh, did our set, uh, you know, uh, kicked ass and uh, no one threw anything, no, no lettuce, <laughs> no tomatoes, no oranges. I mean, does this, you know, does this give you the confidence to say, Hey, you know what? We can play with these guys. That's what we did. We hit the road. We went to, uh, we went to Boston, Philadelphia, Toronto. We started playing all these little clubs that, uh, radio was still playing like songs that were really long and it was classic, like classic rock. And so none of the new, the new wave, the new crop, crop of musicians could get the airplay. Our radio, our W4 and, uh, um, I think, uh, ABX. Was you, was, they had, I think W4 had the uh, homegrown show. Oh, yes, on yes, Sunday yes. W4, yep. Yeah, and so they were playing local music, and ABX uh, started listening. So we got a few airplays on uh, Tell It to Carry and our single. And we, you know, we got uh, some more shows around Detroit. There were a lot of clubs popping up with uh, new music, uh, new rock and roll, new wave music, and uh, new uh, punk music, and Lilies and Hamtramck, and uh, the Red Grape, and uh, over on the east side. and the red carpet, all the little clubs around town were starting to have new music. So you'd have three or four bands playing original, original tunes instead of the cover bands. And uh, we were hitting the road. And the same thing was happening in New York and Philadelphia and uh, Toronto and Boston. We had the Rat Skiller in Boston, an old group from the 60s, right around the corner from the Boston Tea Party, which was like uh, the Grandy Ballroom. Right. Right behind um, Fenway Park. You, you, the hotel we stayed in was right across the street from Fenway Park. And... Uh, Kenmore Square. And uh, so we were, we were traveling. We we're out. We were hitting the road for the next three years. We were on the road and finally got signed in 1980, 19, early 1980. And I had written, uh, I had came up with uh, Jimmy. Uh, I came up with the guitar chords for What I Like About You. It was 70. We couldn't remember the year that What I Like About You was written. It was either 77 or 8. And uh, we were still on the road. And uh, we, I think we did bookies and we played What I Like About You. And I think we did Boston. We played Boston. Rats going. We played it. I think I recall. Regardless so of the year, can you tell me about what? Do you remember the writing process for that? Oh, totally, I want to ask totally. you specifically about that song, about how you wrote well, that song. I remember I, I, my story. My mom dropped me off at the studio after I wrote it at my dad's house, and I was playing it on the on the picnic table. It was a nice. It was a. It was a cold. 
it was it was in the, in the I think like between fall and summer, and so you'd get these days where it was warm in summer, and then by by five o'clock it was freezing, forty degrees, thirty degrees, thirty eight degrees. You know what I mean? It was it's still warm some days, but then anyway, so it was nice out. I went outside with the guitar, played the guitar, came up with these chords, and I and I seem to remember my mom dropping off, and I didn't have a car. But I was right about one thing. I didn't have a car, and Jimmy came and picked me up, is what he says. Jimmy picked me up, and uh, I showed him the chords in the backyard. And uh, he goes, yeah, man, that's really cool. He goes, remember, let's go. Let's get going. I put my guitar in the the car, he said. And um, he said that I I was afraid that I wasn't going to remember the chords. He goes, just remember the chords. You can get in the back seat with your guitar and play them. (laughs) And I go, no, I'll remember it, I think. And so I was remembering it on the way to the studio. We got the studio, and... uh, those guys weren't there there yet. See, when I drove, I got there late. You see, <laughs> everybody be there waiting. But uh, with with Jimmy or when my mom dropped me off, uh, I was there early. And uh, so this time it was me and Jimmy were playing it, and uh, we got the song. And he's singing. He goes, "Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what I like. That's it. That's it." He's he's saying that in the microphone. So that's it. That's it. You got it. You got it. You remember? That's it. That's what I like. That's the groove. That's what I like. That's how he came up with the title. That's wow. what I like. Uh, that's great yeah so and then from that he had probably one verse i bet he had only one verse because we played a show we played shows after that and he was singing it and he'd sing um his verse and then there was a photographer um oh god uh sue rinsky used to photograph all the punk bands and um he'd sing a, you know she'd come dressed to the hill all the all the girls would wear mini skirts or they wear really uh, their hair would be all ratted out all decked out punk punk spikes and different colors hair and he'd be singing about the characters in the audience you know the girl and the, and the pretty girls in the audience so he had one verse then he just uh you know and that's what i that's the way i saw it Interesting. and uh so i didn't I don't, I don't think he had actually a set really a set set of lyrics i'll have to ask him a set set of lyrics when we recorded it. I think he finally got that later on. But sounds like it was yeah. a work in progress for a couple of performances. He, well, it was so fun. It, he he just did what he wanted on it, and that's the way it happened with songs. Sometimes you had the two verses or a verse, and you're still working on it, but you're mumbling the bridge or you're mumbling <laughs> something. You're making it up as you go. You know, that's the way it works. Now, obviously, yeah. you had no idea it was going to be the hit it was, but did you know that that song was a hit when you wrote it? All the songs we wrote, we always wrote them thinking they could be something that people could relate to because we tried to keep them in that kinks beatles early um where we grew up with where i grew up with hearing the kinks and animals songs that you know that had a verse that you could sing to and remember with with guys it's really frustrating for me i I don't like giving this away you see band members see bands with five guys or four guys and only one guy sings I mean, it's so easy to sing backup right. and it just makes your chorus, the chorus of the song, it makes it stick in the heads of the people listening in the audience and they leave thinking of that song. Yeah. They leave singing that song. I, I say all the time that Mike Anthony is the reason Van Halen was so successful. I honestly believe Right, that. great melodies, great melodies. Uh, yeah, exactly. And and same with, well, David Lee Roth came up with good, good, good uh, hooks, good cover. Yeah. And, you know, they weren't a band, they weren't a band like, um, uh, motorhead where you can't a melody melody is just a straight note singing straight ahead all of, and screaming it out he had melodies you know that that's you got to give him that he had melodies and he had lyric lyrics that you remember no matter what they were you know it, the idea is to hook people in with the with the with, that's why it's called the hook you hook them in for the chorus 
It's like Dick Clark said, it's got no. a good beat and you can dance to it. Hey, listen. <laughs> that's that's exactly it. That, long story short, that's exactly it. <laughs> it. It's a very popular trope in Hollywood movies, especially about music, where you hear someone hearing their song on the radio for the first time. In fact, it's a dynamic that I think is fascinating. I mean, can you talk about the first time that you heard that song on the radio? Was that the first song you had on the radio, or was there another one? Um, well, I think Tell It Carry or one of those were out from that 45 we had, W4, and those guys, played it. we had the, the record out, uh, the homegrown record. Talk about that. Which is pro- it's probably really rare. We went to the studio and uh, recorded it probably in like 10 minutes. Uh, did it and, and it was, uh, I think, Archer, Archer uh, pressed it, Matt Archer uh, in Detroit. And it was just a 45 we put out on our own Spider Records. And then we did a second one came out and we went, uh, we talked to Greg Shaw at Bomp Records. Bomp. Bomp was a um, magazine. Originally, Bomp was a magazine, a little, uh, what do you call it, fanzine. And he would write about 60s music, like real raw, real good 60s music. You know, like the Seeds, the Chocolate Watch Band, all these bands that uh, went by the, under the wire. A lot of the bands, that, they had one album or, uh, you know, uh, 13 Floor Elevators, the Seeds and, and so on. 96 tears you know with those guys question mark mysterious and he was out of la and he was writing this magazine and we found this magazine and so it influenced us he was going to start putting records out and so it influenced a whole uh generation of musicians to put out records that bomb bomb records and uh hit parader magazine because they supported new bands so that's what we did we, we did the same thing um so we put out our second record it came out on bomb our 45 and came out on bop and we just stayed on the road and we met uh, nat weiss at emperor records and he loved the band um he came to shows we had played new york like 10 times uh we played all the clubs in new york we were almost our second city was new york another thing i want to ask you about mike is the legendary cbgb's you mentioned it earlier that that it's it's like infamous now but what was that venue like to play and how is it different than some of the clubs you played in detroit well it's really much like a uh uh highfalutin stomp beer beer swilling kick shit kicking kind of if i can say that uh uh place absolutely, it was really yeah. it was a country western uh uh it was supposedly like, like it was on a it was on a raw raw side of town it wasn't in a great part of town it wasn't in the village it was opposite the village it was uh on a main drag it was right next to it was a hotel that was a flop house the other side was um I think I like a little party store and it was just no, nothing. You walked the doors open, like a, like actually the doors open, like a, like a saloon, but they were, they were French doors and they'd open the doors. They'd swing open. And then uh, you go on the right was a long bar and on the left were, were tables. And then way in the back was a stage in the corner. It wasn't even a stage. It was on the floor. And that's when me and Jimmy played there. It was, we were on the floor. Then later on, they built the stage on the right side to the right. And it had uh just so you step up, up a foot, you know, everybody played uh, uh, Patty Smith and Ramones and Blondie and we're reading about them in, in hit parader magazine. So that was the place to go to. That was our place. And so we, we, uh, we got to gig there. It was probably in 70, it was in 77 in July. I'm sure it was in 77 because we got there and we're supposed to play. Um, I think it was a Friday night. I think it was a Friday night. And uh, we got there. It was five o'clock in the afternoon, four, three, four, five o'clock in the afternoon. And um, we're in the van. We went and just to check in the check the club out, and then go to the hotel. And we got there, and um, there was a power power failure. The whole the whole town was blacked out. There was a blackout. The whole you know 1977, the blackout occurred, and New York was shut down for a week. And so, I think we that um, had to be weird, like in that big of a uh, city. It was strange. In New dark. York, yeah, crazy, crazy. 
And um, some people came from, I think some people had heard we were playing, so they came from uh, from Detroit. And uh, so some people we'd seen there, they were stuck there too. And, you know, hotels, you had to, we had to go book the hotel. There's no, there weren't computers at the time, but you still had to go through all the, the crap to get a room. And uh, anyway, we had to stay up. I don't think we came back and played that week. We came back and played later. Uh, I, I seem to think we played on a Sunday after that, but uh, I'm not sure. We did come back. We played two more times at uh, CBGB's. But it was really, a, um, what was cool about it is, just like in Detroit and around the country, there were no places for original music. The guitar player from the Patti Smith group, he the, he played guitar behind her, behind her, and she recited poetry at this church, at the church in New York. And it moved from there to CBGB's and probably a few other places where they could do this. And then uh, CBGB's was just like a poetry session and anybody could walk Len, in. Lenny and, Kay, I think. Lenny Kay, that's it. Yeah, thank you. And um, they were they would do the sing. Uh, she'd read poetry and uh, he'd play guitar. Then they did the same thing over in uh, the village and over at uh, CBGB's. It became a new rock club. So everyone was uh, was flooding to play there, coming from Europe and coming from uh, from London, the punk bands. And, you know, so we, it cool. was our place. That's where we aimed for it. It was like that was the next thing to aim for, playing New York, playing CBGBs. Now, I was going to say, I've heard this from Michael Persh and Brian Pastoria. They say Detroit audiences are different. Can you talk to me about the difference between a New York audience and a Detroit audience, if there's any? Detroit expects you to to lay it on the line. Your soul, your soul has to be right out there. You have to put it all out. You have to really, no fakery, no nothing. You have to lay it on the line and pull the crowd in with you without without being phony about it it's just uh really uh just uh it's a uh it's like working out or like uh, a sport or it's like uh the energy you get when you uh it, it's a physical thing it's a real physical thing that turns into a a, a release and um i think it has a lot to do with um detroit 24 hours making cars building cars uh, two miles away from where they're building the cars on Connor Road, yeah. the Chrysler, the Chrysler plant back in the day when I was 14 years old, it was hot summer nights and you were out on the lawn trying to cool off laying on the lawn uh, or on the porch or upstairs on the porch. And you're hearing the stamping plant, boom, boom, boom. You're hearing the stamping plant. You could hear the stamping plant all the way from the uh, Connor Road over on there um, a mile and a half away. The sound the, the the dirt the noise attracted pulled in by noise the noise and the smell and the energy and the, I think that all affect, affected the the city and being a working class town I don't explain it very well but it, it, that those things uh, are inherent in what we uh, affect us to release our uh, our uptightness you know when you're uptight you want to really you release and the music does it for us and that kind of music is what does it. Yeah, and just and yeah, to, to, to amplify the fact that you know the bands that came before you, and then obviously yeah. during your heyday, and then after you, they came, exactly. they brought it. So you, there was the, the the bar was high from the other musicians. So yeah, um, yeah it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't clean a clean air in Detroit and, and the city, and it wasn't clean until seventies. I mean, all through that time, we smelled you could smell it, and it was in the air. I mean, it was <laughs> it was all around you all the time. The noise, people working twenty four hours going to going to different shifts, you know, and the clubs around the the. There were, there were always bars around the, uh, the, um, the the factories, the shops and that. So, you know, there was a certain kind of a release people needed to forget about their job, you know, forget about to relax. With songs like Tell It to Carrie, When I Look in Your Eyes, obviously that's what I like about you. She's got everything. Already had this success. 
Um, you were fired from the Romantics after recording your second album. Yeah. Can you share what happened yeah. and also discuss how and when you returned to the band? Well, yeah, like with what I like about you, the way that came up, that song, it was just like inspiration for me. It's the way I came up with stuff. I would come up with a guitar part and come up with uh, tunes and ideas. And I'd say, okay, this is like, uh, this might be like an animal song, but here's the chords I got. And, and I'd bring it in and I might have a title, I might have a melody, and then the band might take it take it to the next level or I might have a complete song and say, here's it, here it is. Rich would throw maybe an idea. And it, there's a lot of different ways. A lot of songs I would I'd have a complete idea. I'm like the spark. I'm like that spark. I can do that on a whim. I can do that on a whim without thinking. I can come up with that thing. And then with the, with the, the look of the band, it, it got down to the look of the band. The first album comes out. We put the, we do the look of the band with a certain look with the, wearing the same suits and everything. I didn't really want to repeat that over and over again. I was kind of like going, man, there's all this punk stuff happening in, in, in London and it's all real creative and it's real open. And, and I wanted it to look more raw. I wanted, I wanted to come off a lot raw. The second album has a lot. It's like the first along the same lines as the first album, but it was more live in the studio. The second album, I, I pushed, pushed for more of a live attack. So when we recorded the record, we recorded the record. Um, we lined up just like we were on stage. That's, you don't usually do that in the studio. We lined up with the drums in the middle and the amps on the side and, and the microphones were placed close to the amps then like six feet away and then like uh, 12 or 15 feet away and then room mics. So we were playing live. There, it was all done live. And that's the attitude I was thinking of. And, um, and so there, were, there was friction, friction coming from management not seeing royalties and that kind of thing and money issues and so it's it's usually about money <laughs> and yeah, yeah it was there but and i maybe management was getting a little worried but uh, but um you know and we did a show we did uh, the second record this had a lot to do with it as well mostly i think we did the first record in 80 and the three songs went on the charts. What I Like About You came out, the third song. It went up to 47, I believe, and it dropped off the charts. And then the management and the label was telling us, you guys got to get in right now to do a new record. And we just recorded the first record. It wasn't even one year, and we're being told to go in the studio. Now, with the band, you're, you're, it takes time to really develop songs and really put your heart and soul into it and make it something that you want to represent, you want, want to be represented of you. And the first album took us three, four years to do. You know, we, we started with my little cassettes I brought into the studio. And uh, three or four of those songs ended up on the first album. So we're told we got to go to do the new, next record. So here we are recording the second record, not 12 months. It might have been just 12 months. I think it was early, earlier. Uh, we're recording the second album and then we're going on the road and we're playing the second album instead of the first album mostly and uh and this was a real uh, traumatic i think and turmoil within the group trying me coming up with so new songs new solos uh us coming up with melodies and titles it was just i think it just squeezed us in uh in the wrong way and um tension turmoil studio and people coming at each other and it just, uh, it just, I was forced out. I was forced out, fired. And uh, uh, in the, after we played Australia, we did Australia, came back and I, uh, my manager called me and just uh, said, I'm exiting from the group. 
Wow. Come, come to talk, if I talk about it now, what I know now, I was never given a letter, letter of a resignation. So I was never really out of the band. I was, they were getting paid and I, I should have went back and got paid for all the shows they did for, without me when I was still in the band. <laughs> right, right. Anyway. So, so how did they ask record, you to come back then? What happened there? Well, here's what happened. Second album came out. Uh, before that, just before we went to Australia, we recorded uh, the What I Like About You video, I think I think it was. It was actually it was quite a bit before that, maybe a few months um, or more. And uh, we were playing the Whiskey A Go-Go and uh, we did a sound check or we had gotten calls previous to the show. We had gotten some calls um, from Holland, France and Germany that What I Like About You was running up to charts. Uh, here we're dropping down the charts in the U.S. and we're told to go get do a new record in France and Germany. This is the whole. This was a big thing too. We the band thought we should be going to Europe to promote the first album, and here the management and the label tell us we got to do a new record. So we should have been going around the world, but the management didn't want to spend the money. Mm. They were taking the dough and um, whatever, and, and they were they were worried about spending a lot of money. Um, so we did we we. We ignored Europe when we should have been going to Europe. We 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 ended and recorded a new record. Here we are doing hearing from Holland and France, Germany that the record's running up the charts, going up. To, it was in the top ten, and Australia was in the top ten. Same thing. It went to number one. Got a gold record from Australia, and um, in Holland they call us from Holland to say they need a video. So videos were still being shot, being shot since the sixties. We're talking the eighties. Uh, they were still on TV. They'd have the dance shows, the little rock and roll shows, and they were still showing videos. MTV wasn't around yet. So they came over, one camera, two guys, a hotel, a dinner or lunch or both. And they came over to Whiskey Go-Go. We did our sound check. We played the songs. Uh, we, uh, I expressed, I seem to recall, I expressed that I wanted it to appear like Hard Day's Night, where the camera is like on the hands on the, right. the drummers drumming drumming hands and foot the shoes the guitar the imagery of the guitar of the band and also a, a few feet real close up on the faces and then six feet away 15 feet away and then you know three two different uh areas of filming and uh do it in black and white and maybe add some red or whatever uh and make it real kind of gritty so it looked like hard day's night and only new wave kind of a new wave attitude so they came over, they filmed it that way. They filmed it like an, an hour, an hour, and that's it. And then uh, I think we went off to Australia. The, the video went out to Australia. The song went to number one. We went to Australia. We ignored Europe. Tensions brewed, and uh, uh, I came back uh, from Australia, and I was out, and then MTV happened mm -hmm. next year. And uh, Before that, somewhere in there, uh, Bud Budweiser came to us and asked if we want if they, we could use. Uh, they told them, I think management already agreed. I don't even know how much we got. I never got paid. I never got a check for it. But I don't know how much we got paid for the commercial. I still don't. And, and in fact, yeah, a lot of that stuff happened. But um, it's because they used like your video in their commercial or something, didn't they? Yeah, it was a commercial, but like commercial, and um, they showed uh, quick flashes of us and the song, what was being played, and we looked at. Uh, no one was really doing that at the time. No one was really doing commercials with uh, rock bands. And it was kind of, it, it was flash in the pan. It would happen occasionally, but it was kind of flipping back. I, maybe it was because MTV was kind of happening or maybe it was something else, but they asked us and we had no reservations about doing it. 
other than I wasn't going to play the guitar that had a was shaped like a with said Bud Light on it. <laughs> That's I wasn't going to do that. But right. uh, so we got some riffraff. We got some. We got some. We kind of got some like ah, they're in a Bud Light commercial. Uh, like, sold out. Yeah, yeah sold out. But we were looking at like like the Who and um, the Yardbirds and a, and a few other bands in the '60s were doing perfume commercials and yeah. milkshake commercials and and whatever what have you. Yeah, you it know? was a different time because even movie stars wouldn't do commercials in the states. Their yeah. commercials were like overseas in Europe. And I'm thinking ahead of my time. I'm, I've, I've been a commercial artist in school, and so I'm thinking <laughs> in school I was going to go to art school, and I'm thinking like graphic arts and commercial art and what you see now, you know, see everywhere now. I was in that. Uh, art groove and i'm going man that's like you know like uh that sh- movie blow up like the movie blow up yeah you do the commercial and it's just like it's the radio it's not different than radio it's you're promoting a product but your song's getting played on the radio and sure enough the song took off and it's in all the movies and commercials and so after you come back technically your second stint with the romantics you guys scored another huge hit with talking in your sleep what did what did that song yeah they called me back they called me back the label told me you to get skill back i think jimmy wanted me to come back in the band uh, uh, although he never called me to fire me, uh, in, and tell me the reason why, but, uh, uh, the, uh, the management called me, uh, they were on the road somewhere, I think, uh, Texas or something in the swimming pool or, or whatever. I don't know. They called me up and said, uh, look, we're thinking about you coming back in the band and the label wanted, uh, they were going to get someone to write. I found out later someone to write songs with them or get me back in the band. So, uh, I came back and, uh, I had a few tunes. I was working with uh, Mike Purse. I was with Mike Purse and uh, Dennis Marks from uh, Toby Red. We were we, we formed a band, and uh, what's his name? Uh, the drummer from uh, Seatbelts. Mm. Uh, so we had a band going. We had a band going. I was rehearsing when they called. So uh, I got together with them, and uh, when they came home a month, probably a few weeks later, a month later, and uh, we started writing songs. I started bringing in songs for. Uh, for what became in heat the romantic the, those guys had released the record in between with the pink suits wow. on the cover of the album uh, cool. strictly personal but but uh which it didn't do anything on the charts so so they got me back and uh we did it in heat and uh i had the bass line i came back on bass guitar this time but i was still playing guitar and writing stuff and uh so it went so, to number the album went to geez i don't know it went to the talking your sleep went to number two and I think uh, I don't know what the album went to. It was in the. T- I think so it was that, in the top. So I didn't know that that charted higher than. That's what I like about you, huh? Well, what I like about you dropped off the charts at that's like seventy four. I think it was forty seven. It wasn't. It wasn't a hit. It wasn't a hit. It was you know they because Europe was more open minded, and I think the song took off. And in the states, you still had classic rock, and it was. When our album came out and Elvis Costello and The Clash and Squeeze and Nick Lowe and all the cool bands came out, they weren't getting played on the radio. It was really tough to get on the radio at that time. Elvis Costello was not a normal thing to get. He still doesn't get a lot of play on radio. The Clash, you still don't hear much of The Clash unless it's it. Now it's all on computer. But I mean, a terrestrial radio, you know. Back then, it was it was it, the door was closed to us, yeah. ba- our bands. It was closed. We our first tour, we were opening for Cheap Trick before our first album. We were opening for Cheap Trick and uh, other bands because um, the word was getting around. Uh, we we got signed. I think we got noticed because of Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick. He collected uh, cassettes. Wow. He would collect cassettes of bands of, of pop bands he liked. He loved pop bands. Wow, like you know Beatles, Kinks, Yardbirds, all that yeah. early 60s, 60s stuff. And so we got, he got our uh, cassette 
and he gave it to someone in A&R at uh, CBS Records. And so we got calls from uh, Epic Portrait from Epic. And uh, we almost signed with uh, Epic, CBS. And then we eventually signed with Nemperer, which was, we were never on a major. We were on uh, uh, Nemperer Records with a custom label of Epic Portrait, which is a custom label of CBS, uh, Columbia. We weren't getting the push like the Knack or other bands that were on the main major label. The Knack, when they came out, they got their, well, we played the red carpet and we had our black and white skinny ties, white, black and white, just 1977, six or seven. There was no knack. But Doug Figer showed up at the red carpet and we did our show. We played and uh, we heard Figer was in the audience. We had all black and white, white shirts, <laughs> black ties, black shirts, white ties, our pop songs. Jimmy, when I look in your eyes, look at when I look in your eyes, the intro to when I look in your eyes and then listen to my Sharona. Uh, uh, next thing you know, a year later, the knack comes out on billboards with black and white shirt ties and skinny t- skinny ties and wow yeah and we 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 never had that we never had billboards or or our 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 album on our, our uh, picture on spread across billboard magazine or on they were on billboards on sunset sunset you know in la we had to go on the we hit the road we were on the road we just we were a road band like jay giles we go in play kick ass and come out you know with a thousand more fans, a hundred more fans. Yeah. That's, that's what did, we did. Yeah. The thing was, we went to Australia and played that album. We played most of that album, maybe three or four songs from the first album. And I'm still learning. I mean, I'm the tour was booked and, and we went to rehearsals and I'm still trying to learn the song, the solos that I hadn't been playing. Right. You know, the first, the first album I played the, the songs for four, three years, you know, so I knew the songs inside and out. And when you're going live, it's different from when you're in the studio. I'm figuring out, let, let me put it this way, if you got the time. I, I come up with a song, you, you work the songs out. You might work some of the solos out. You might get those a little bit in your head, what you're going to do. And then you go into pre-production and then you record the album and then you're writing as you go on the fly. Then you come out, you go into, you go into rehearsals. Well, I still haven't learned the solos because I just wrote the solos. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm still not... I didn't do very well in that first tour, that first <laughs> go through. And, and I think coming out of it, it, uh, it's just, there was people were freaking out about it and we weren't in the best state of mind after doing the record. And yeah. it's just, uh, we were at each other and, uh, I was fired. I was, I was a scapegoat and, uh, I, well, to prove it, I came back and the, in heat was a big record. Let's yeah. put it that way. Well, as we've talked about, and I mentioned at the top of the show, you never stopped making music. You continue to put it out. Could you talk about some of the record- songs you recorded and released last fall? I'm really liking sure 67. Can. I'm loving 67 Riot. <laughs> yeah, well, I had the idea. Of, I'm thinking 67, 67 Riot. Man, that's a great title. I go, and that was an event when I was lived on the east side of Detroit on Chalmers and Pachardavoy, far east side, six blocks from Gross Point Park. The riots happen July. It's real hot. It's like... It's really hot. I recall it was really hot summer and uh, in July and something happened on that, on, on, on Woodward, on the, on that side of town at the, uh, at the hotel, the motel it was like a speakeasy or something, right? Well, that was, that was, that's 67 riot. But before that, that happened before the riot, actual riot, there was some, uh, well, there's a movie about it. I think the movie, uh, I think it's Detroit. called Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. That one talks about the riot, the, the, at the, at the whole motel. And I think that preceded the riots. And that was that, that, that thing that happened at the motel, um, inflamed, inflamed, uh, the city, uh, black folks in the city. 
and uh, police brutality, basically. And so then later on, uh, the 67 riot happened. I mean, there's frustrations all around. Whatever it was, it was frustrations all around. And, um, and I had that in my head because I was 12, 13 years old. No, little, maybe 13, 14 years old. I, I learned guitar and um, was learning guitar. And here's Jeeps coming to my neighborhood. Jeeps with tanks mounted on the Jeeps. National Guard. And that helicopters. Crazy, yeah. Helicopters, green helicopters flying in the air above the air, flying down Charlotte above the air. Troops, what do you call it? National Guard. National Guard. We're, we were a good five miles, maybe seven miles from mm. uh, where the riot happened, you know. But radio and TV, especially TV, was taking it to another level. I, I remember that infamous uh, video, I think it was on Channel 7, of that, that old woman driving down Woodward with a gun out the window. <laughs> It was oh, scary times. Yeah, it, it got it was really inflamed. I mean, you, the news really pushed it. I mean, you know, there was a huge uh, auto parts store called Gratiot Auto Supply in Detroit, and they had on Gratiot towards downtown, they had these huge, as big as a house, big as the front of a house, uh, glass front windows you could see in, and there were like rows of them, like one, two, three, four, four rows of them. They broke out those windows and put up cement blocks mm. because they were so afraid. They were so afraid. So, so that whole attitude was happening. And um, anyway, so that whole vibe, uh, uh, nothing ever happened in my neighborhood. It, we, there was nothing going to come to our neighborhood. It was, I know, think you did a good job in uh, 67 Riot of, of painting that picture. I think you did really well on that tune. I like it. Well, I, yeah. And you know what? I'm, I, I read the lyrics now and I go, God, where'd that come from? How did I do that? I mean, and I go, because I, what I did is I wrote down my pictures in my head and over time i developed it so it took it took a, a good amount of time to really have the lyrics in the order that i liked them and the, and the words that i said because i did i had a responsibility to say it correctly and um not aggrandize uh, it you know i didn't want it to be uh, to grandize it and and hear a white guy here come come here and playing a song about that about an event that happened and 42 people dying in the end i'm saying you know we've got to dream our dreams and come together. You know, we got to teach, teach ourselves to come together is basically what I was trying to say after all that stuff. And we never did that Detroit. I think we could kind of floundered. I think it kind of floundered and like with the country now. And, um, it stuck with me. It stuck with me. So I, I, I cause I grew up on motor cities, burning MC five. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's time for change. It's time for change and nothing changed. So here it is, the Bush administration. I'm thinking 67 riot. And um, so I had to write it properly. And and, uh, and I'm really, uh, I, and it came out the way I liked it. And I was thinking the groove was, I'm, I'm all thinking about uh, George Clinton parliament, Funkadelic <laughs> and, and, uh, and MC5. I'm yeah. thinking like that. And that's how I thought of the beat. I got to have a groove like that. And so um, I had just a simple line again, once again, a simple bum, 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 and that's right. just made me think of on the one, like Bootsy always says, on the one, you know? <laughs> I love Bootsy. I, I'm all about Silk Sonic right now. I love Bootsy's back with Silk I know. Sonic. Electrify, awesome. Electrifying Mojo. Remember that radio show? The, you know, the, was, yeah, the Midnight yeah. Funk Association. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's where I was coming with that. I'm thinking like Bootsy and uh, MC5 and something in Detroit. And, I'm, and so the lyrics like slowly came to me. And uh, uh, I went in my little studio I had in, in Portland. I moved to Portland. Uh, my wife was out of Portland. We, we toured with the tubes and she was dancing in the tubes and she's in. She's a beauty video and all that stuff, but um, you're, you, wait, your wife's in the that's a beauty video. Yeah, she's a, she's, she's a beauty. She's a yeah. She taught dance at uh, Portland Community oh, College. Wow, and, uh, that's cool. She moved to L.A. and uh, was in commercials and did uh, videos and and taught uh, 
choreography to that's too cool he was in one one from the heart the movie one from the heart and all that and that's that's awesome i, I yeah, see I, I see some of the names that helped you record this latest record in addition to some of the original guys from the romantics you got kevin rankin from the flock of seagulls wayne kramer from mc5 yeah, ricky rat well brad elvis on drums and chloe orwell is his wife and she's a singer she's a singer song right there of a group uh handcuffs and uh they're out of chicago and uh, brad's with us for about 17 years i think the romantics and uh, I, um, I, but, but when I was in the studio with 67 Ride, I just had the, the engineer uh, came in and I told him to play a kick, kick in the snare beat. Just do kick snare. Here's the click track. Boom, pop, boom. Wow. That's <laughs> so awesome. It's really basic, really basic. And that's why I wanted it because it was about the song, not about the drums. And, uh, and I just kept overdubbing stuff and doing Hendrix kind of like uh, wing uh, MC5 and Hendrix, kind of like blues guitar stuff. And uh, Next thing you know, I'm coming up with backups and I didn't have it finished. I didn't have the last verse and I, I did the last verse was a little different. And uh, usually um, courses go four times around or eight times around or I wanted three times around. So it, was, it's, it set you off. You're expecting a fourth and it ended on three, three, three courses. So um, the song came out and I did it. I, I, I recorded a, a handful of other songs. I recorded a Sinner song uh, at my little studio here and um 67 Riot, uh, Sinner Song, uh, four, three or four more songs here. Carrie got and married. Then, is that a takeoff on Tell Carrie? Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And uh, that's Chloe Orwell. She wrote the, she wrote the song, and I, I've added my guitar uh, technique or whatever you want to call it, my trademark guitar sound on it. And uh, anyway, before I get off track, uh, so I recorded five song, about five, six songs over here in my studio, my little studio at, at my son's school. There was a, a double wide trailer that I built a control room in. And when the kids weren't in the music room at night, I would go in there record. And they'd use the, the equipment in the day. They use the guitars in the day. But uh, at night, I'd be in there till three in the morning recording. And I met Chuck Ocasian later on. We mixed the songs. I mixed the songs. Then I met Chuck. And I, he said, send me the songs. Send me the songs. He's over at Pearl Sound in the uh, Detroit area. And uh, I sent the songs out to him. And I got them back. And they were like, wow. The mixes I had were good, but these were like, whoa, these are like, now this, this like forced me into like, man, I, this is, this is going to be enough for an album. I need four, four or five more songs. So I wrote probably eight or 10 more songs, picked four or five more and, uh, and finished those up. Chuck, uh, mixed them. I, uh, finished a couple in the studio at Pearl Sound. Uh, we mixed a couple more at Pearl Sound. I sent them to New York to, uh, have them mastered. Next thing you know, I got enough for an album and, uh, I hooked up with some people to promote it and um, they said, let's see, let's go digital. Let's do some digital releases. You want uh, uh, releases? You want to want to get your name? out? I want to get my name out um, as opposed to romantics all the time. I don't mind being connected. With, I love being connected with romantics. I mean, it's my history, but uh, I wanted to get Mike's skill out. So uh, we uh, kind of zeroed in on that and uh, we pushed one song, which pushed 67 right out, came out and I put it out on 45. I still have 45s. Uh, you can get them at <laughs> cool. uh, MikeSkill.com with Wayne Kramer on the on the 45. It's a great 45 a vinyl. I will and, put uh, that in the show notes. So yeah, if you do yeah. That, click in the show I'll notes. Send, I'll send you one, and uh, I'll get your address. And um, it turned out really good. Wayne Kramer, uh, I, Chuck, and I were uh, mixing and all doing all the work on the songs, and he goes. I told him, man, it'd be really cool to hear Wayne Kramer on the on 67 Riot. Really, really kick ass because they did Motor City. Uh, it's burning right. and um mc5 and he goes call him call him 
And I'm going, I can't call him, man. That guy, I learned guitar, all the songs, <laughs> all the MC5 songs. I, I play them at 33 and learned all their guitar parts, you know? And, uh, and so I thought about it and I eventually called him. I called him. I was out and about with my son here. And um, I called him and he goes, Mike, send me the songs, man. And I, so I sent him the tunes. I told him what it was. And uh, he heard, he goes, man, it's a great song. I, I love it. I, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, he did it. He sent it back. And I, Chuck and I played it and we go, we couldn't, we couldn't, we didn't want to harm it. We just left it the way it was. We didn't even like uh, do anything to the guitar. We just, he just threw down, he threw down and uh, we left it the way it was and left it in the track and uh, it came out really well. And uh, I ended up playing him with him on stage. He came to Portland with MC50 cool. and I, I played with him on stage. So he says, Mike, send me more songs, send me more songs. So I'm, I'm sending him more songs. Now, obviously me. jamming with some of the greatest musicians in the world you've had the privilege of doing, but you know, you've been a rock star, Mike, you got to, can you share with me maybe one or two cool experiences, maybe rock star stories that you can share? Oh, probably ones that I can't share. <laughs> uh, you know, playing playing Madison Square Gardens twice with uh, once with uh, Cheap Trick, and then once we did it with um, I don't know if we headlined. I thought we headlined with somebody else, Adam Ann or something. Um, the traveling has been great. Detroit's the thing for me for uh, my uh, writing and uh, where this comes from inside. Playing the Michigan Palace. I mean, uh, Michigan. Uh, the, uh, the theater, the Fox theater. Mm. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, meeting uh, Ray Davies. Wow. That's uh, cool. uh, yeah. Ray Davies, uh, all the shows with cheap trick, uh, play touring with the kinks, which toured with the kinks P talking on stage with the Ramones. We're playing a show. Uh, we're us there and doing sound check and getting ready and going on stage. And then Ramones drive up late, getting out of their van, running to the, running to the, running to the dressing room and just jumping on stage. Uh, we did our show and uh, it was either we did our show and Joey walked on stage or they were on stage. And I, I think I was on stage in their show during their show and there was a break and there was like a music kept going. Joey came over my, to my side. There was something going on, an intro or something, a break drum break or something. And I go, man, I love you guys. You guys are great. You know, we're getting, we couldn't get airplay for anything, either band, but um I told him I loved your band. I loved Roman Ramones, man. He goes, yeah, I know you guys from CBGBs and everything. We love you, man. We love. I love your music, your pop music. I go. He goes, I love pop music. He goes, really? I, I didn't really know his bad, you know, background. I kind of got it, you know, because he loved the song. But you know, you know, you, you hear Ramones, you hear the Ronettes, you right. hear the, all that stuff, the girl groups of sixties. And uh, I just told him how much I love the music, and he said the same back, and that's a big deal. That's a, that's too cool. They were so cool. That's so cool. Another thing I want to ask you about is, you know, Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein guitar gets a lot of love for being visually pleasant, but I love the flowery, hate ashbury looking design <laughs> on your guitar. Tell me <laughs> Tell about how you dressed and designed that look. Well, um, to tell the truth, um, let's see, my friend Bobby East, who is uh, a guitar player out of Detroit, uh, famous, uh, really great guitar player. Um, the guitar players from Detroit are, there's some great ones out of Detroit. I have to give them accolades. Uh, my, uh, Jimmy McCarty, uh, Bobby East, and Robert Gillespie, uh, all those guys. And um, Bobby has SG and his kid, uh, his kid, just like my kid, with the stickers around the house. They're on my closet door still. I said, son, 24 years old, uh, and uh, the stickers are still on some of the doors and frame, door frames. When he started putting them on my guitar, Bob, they just, his kid did, his little daughter put the same thing on his guitar. So it went from one thing to the other. And then I started just like 
kind of designing it. Like I still got some Hendrix stuff on there and some glitter stuff and that. So it's kind of just it's cool. Blossomed from hobby in a way. But uh, our kids, our kids did it. <laughs> That's that, of course, of course. So um, obviously, we've talked a little bit about the record you released last uh, last fall. But are you currently doing yeah. any writing? And if so, what can you give us? Some yeah, flavor? I am. I'm, I'm, I'm. My head's full of some 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 ideas right now. I'm get. Uh, I've got some uh, bits and pieces of other songs, and I just released what I like about you because everybody else did it. Um, every it seems like not everybody else. I mean, some other folks have done it, and. Uh, I thought it was time that I did it. I mean, I wrote the song with Jimmy and, uh, and it was time for my voice to get on it. So, uh, I did it with, a, I, I took it like when we did it on the first album, it was, it's kind of like popped up and kind of like a little cleaner, a little bit more a radio friendly and, uh, which is cool. And, um, I wanted it to be like, I just came from a club and I went in the, in the studio and I just banged it out. I wanted to have energy and attitude, some attitude. Right. So I let, I, I got the amplifier, a high watt amplifier. I used to record the original, I had that amplifier and uh, I plugged in my Ricken, this a 60, 65 Rickenbacker, three pickup Rickenbacker I have. I plugged that in. My son engineered it. My son wow. engineered the guitar and the vocal. He's the vocal with me. He's real good with vocals. That's got to be I, cool to, 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 with your son. That's awesome. Yeah, Smokes. He plays piano. He's a good piano player. He loves jazz and rock, real rock and roll. He loves 50s jazz. And jazz. Anyway, so uh, he came He came and did it. I put it out. I sent it to Chuck and Ch I told Chuck, Give it uh, the vibe of the, the original, but I wanted to have that attitude like we were, we're doing it in a club, one of the, the punk new wave clubs. So uh, he did. I got it back. And it was, I go, man, just make sure the vocal's up and uh, and uh, it's in your face and the guitar has that ring to it. And that's what he did. And I uh, put it out and it's, uh, it's, it's going to come out. I want to do a uh, 45 with it. So um, I tried to get the album out on vinyl. We did six songs last year on... Uh, on digital, we released Carrie Got Married, which was by uh, Chloe, Hor Chloe Orwell. She did the words, words and music. I did my guitar stuff. I did Not My Business. That's my original. Ricky Rats on guitar because I wanted to have another sound on there. And uh, My Bad Pretty, that came out last year. Uh, 67 Riot was out before all that. Uh, with and Without Wayne. We Got Your Rock and Roll is another one about Detroit, the vacuum that was happening in the 70s when there was nowhere to go in downtown Detroit except to a Masonic Temple or Ford Auditorium or Cobo Hall, pure rock and roll shows. There was there was a few clothing stores downtown. Fabulous Second Hands was a, a clothing store in Washington Square. So artists and musicians were in Detroit, and a few uh, the police station was was open probably and all that. But back in the seventies, nothing was going on in Detroit downtown. And it's about that nothing happened in Detroit. We had our rock and roll, but in L.A., you had all the bands were schmoozing with the uh, Hollywood uh, elite yeah. and that's what that's what happened in LA so we had our rock and roll so we always had the rock and roll we got your rock and roll as a song and um, we got the rock and roll for everybody and then so soul alone a kind of a soul soulish kind of white boy soul kind of Steve Cropper meets Lou Reed <laughs> yeah. the underground song and then um, that's uh that's about it let's see uh What's what's next for you? Are you going to be doing any touring? Maybe coming back to Detroit for some shows? Well, I'm going to try to do both. I, I, I'm not sure about what Romantics right now. It's up in the air uh, touring, and then I've got uh, a few things in the in the pan that I'm doing. So I'll be out doing my stuff and Romantics stuff, and Romantics will be uh, doing whatever happens coming up. Yeah. 
Well, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me. This has been a pleasure. I've just have enjoyed this, and I, I, I know my listeners are going to enjoy it. They have enjoyed it well. So thank you so much, man. Yeah, man. Thank, thank you, Ron. And uh, it's a pleasure, man. I'm, I'm glad you're there to do what you do, and I'll keep it rolling. How can people um, follow up on your music? Uh, Mike, MikeSkill.com or... Uh, you're on Facebook oh, as well, too, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you can get the songs, all the digital, the streaming sites, you know, uh, Bandcamp, Apple Music, iTunes, SoundCloud iHeartRadio music, Amazon music, all that. Mike Skill at uh, Mike Skill at MikeSkill.com and Bandcamp. Yeah, the album. And I'm hoping to get the vinyl out, vinyl album out uh, when I can, when I can get them to press it. I love that you do uh, vinyl. That's just awesome. Yeah, and 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 CDs. I'm gonna do CDs coming up. So we're, we're just waiting to get uh, pull pull the funds together and get uh, get on that. So. Uh, well, keep yeah, on rocking, so my friend. Yeah, man. Thanks, Ron, and uh, you rock it up too, man. All yeah. the best, all the best. Thank you. That's what we like about you, man. Keep it, keep it, keep it rolling, brother. Thanks again to Mike Skill, right. and thank you for tuning in for Radio Days the podcast, and of course, keep an eye out for Radio Days the movie coming later That's this right. year. You're listening, you're listening to Radio Days the <laughs> podcast with Ron, Ron Robinson. Stay tuned in next week for another episode of Radio Days. Until then, you can't go. All the plants are gonna die.